The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. When I think of Thanksgiving, I think of pear salad. In spite of its name, there's no lettuce in pear salad, no dressing of any kind, no vegetables at all, actually. It is a salad only by that peculiar Midwestern definition where cookies and whipped cream count. You blend together some lime jello and Cool Whip and cream cheese and canned pears, and the result is a bouncy, gelatinous blob the color of spearmint toothpaste. It's entirely unclear whether pear salad fancies itself a dessert or a side dish, and I'm not sure I can rightly claim that it's tasty. But I have never been more excited to make and to eat pear salad as I was this past Thursday. With so much changed, with so many once taken for granted realities disrupted, the traditions we can maintain feel all the more precious. Other than pear salad, little about this Thanksgiving felt conventional. Instead, this past Thursday felt to me like a testament to the deep creativity and resilience that can rise to meet limitations. I was heartened to hear about Zoom gatherings of people from across the country and around the world, about extensive phone trees and text threads spanning generations, gatherings of two or three people with tables nevertheless ready to feed 10, the porch drop-offs and mailed care packages and small meals on opposite sides of garages and spread out across backyards. All of these different expressions of Thanksgiving gatherings reminded me of what's possible when we are forced to reimagine how we do things. This year forced us to ask, what of our familiar, comfortable Thanksgiving is worth preserving? And what of it might we need to reimagine or transform? A few years ago, the nostalgia of the season led me to dig through some of the large bound photo albums in my parents' living room. And there, sandwiched between the evidence of a 10th birthday party and a particularly snowy Midwestern winter, I came across a photo of a moment that I'd long since forgotten. The photo depicted an elementary school pageant. Some 30 second graders lined up on risers, mouths agape, suggesting the angelic and likely somewhat off-key harmonies that we must have been singing in the moment the photo was snapped. At first glance, the image was charming evoking memories of seasonal crafts and homemade snacks and turtlenecks and times when we could pack into an auditorium without thinking twice. 
looking closer, I noticed that all of the gathered children were adorned in homemade costumes of one or two types. Half of the assembly donning cardboard hats with painted yellow buckles, and the other half headdresses with feathers cut out from colorful construction paper. And in the photo, we were holding hands. We were enacting the story, the myth of the first Thanksgiving, a story that begins with the pilgrims arriving at Plymouth Rock in 1620 in search of religious freedom, then fast forwards to the following year, and after just a passing mention of the ways that the pilgrims had survived as a result of the kindness and know-how of the indigenous people of the area, the story maintains its zoomed-in focus on the pilgrims as they invite the unnamed indigenous people to the table to break bread. The crux of the myth centers on that shared meal where the parties are said to have celebrated the abundance of the harvest and the beginnings of a promising relationship of collaboration and mutual support. We now know that that foundational story is layered with painful inaccuracies, too innumerable almost to detail in full right now. Everything from the details of the food to the idealized depiction of the pilgrims to the erroneous representation of the gathering being defined by goodwill and mutual consent. Even more troubling than the errors in the story are the omissions. In most versions, the Wampanoag aren't even mentioned by name, and there's little or no acknowledgement that they had been stewards of that land for thousands of years. Nor is there mention of the lethal pandemic that tore through Wampanoag communities just a year later. Or the massacres of neighboring people, the 700 women and men and children killed by those same settlers in the decades following. Or as David Silverman reminds in his book, This Land is Their Land, the chilling reality that some early pilgrim thanksgivings actually celebrated those same plagues and massacres of Native people. And of course, the larger history of settler colonialism and genocide and dispossession of people from land has no place in the pageant version of the Thanksgiving story. These fallacies are increasingly well known. Journalist Brett Anderson quips that articles debunking the Thanksgiving myth have become as common as cornbread recipes come mid-November. And that change in the conversation is something to be grateful for. But after a year where we've been called to a deeper reckoning with the United States' foundational relationship with white supremacy, and to a deeper understanding of the past and present consequences of institutional racism. Perhaps more is required of us. 
For we Unitarian Universalists, there is a particular mandate, not only that we reconsider Thanksgiving, as we called ourselves to in a 2016 resolution of the General Assembly, but that we acknowledge and reckon with our faith forebearers' role in promoting and developing the whitewashed version of a holiday. This week, the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, president of our Unitarian Universalist Association, preached that an important piece of this work is examining and debunking the Thanksgiving myth and owning our tradition's role in its creation. We are called not just to remember, but to remember, to put back together a more whole version of the Thanksgiving story. To tell the parts of the story that are often glossed over or left out entirely, and to reckon with the role that this story has played in supporting the ongoing project of settler colonialism. One element of that reckoning, I think, is acknowledging why the myth of Thanksgiving has had such staying power, such appeal, Part of the reason, according to Chris Newell of the Akumwat Educational Initiative, is because the Thanksgiving story came into public consciousness decades after the event that it describes, intended as a unifying origin story that would promote nationalism following the Civil War. But there's another component, too, that I think is actually harder in some ways to reconcile. As shocking as it was to come across that photo depicting the very way that the Thanksgiving myth has been passed down through generations, it was even more troubling to remember that as a second grader, I loved not only the crafts and the songs from that day, but the story itself the celebratory shared meal, the vision of people coming together across cultural differences to share in gratitude and thanksgiving. It's compelling. And the prevailing vision of a welcoming thanksgiving table is modeled in that image, held up as a table where all, all are welcome, where we're invited or even required to connect across our differences. A table where our deep appreciation for the abundance of our lives together might transcend, if only for a meal, the forces that otherwise keep us apart. Could you hear that vision in Dennis's reflection? There's the vision of a table with such abundance to be shared such a foundation in gratitude that it would require us to invite in even the most difficult person we can imagine. It's a beautiful vision, and I'm glad that many of us do our best to enact it in some way or another each year. But if our vision of a welcoming Thanksgiving table is rooted in a falsified origin story, one that obscures foundational violence, can it really be a welcome table at all? 
Our individual experiences of coming to the table are, of course, deeply particular, shaped by each of our identities and personalities and relationships with others, making the rare moments where patterns emerge all the more instructive. On an afternoon in early December several years ago, a friend and I made our way across town to an acquaintance's queer potluck. We sat together on the floor, sharing in vegan mac and cheese and leftover sweet potato pie while the host invited some preliminary introductions. But before long, the conversation took a vulnerable turn. One person shared a heartbreaking story from time with family the week before. And without any prompting, half a dozen other people followed suit. While the details differed, the crux of these stories was the same. These were stories of painful family gatherings, stories of being invited to show up, but only partially, stories of leaving behind parts of oneself for the sake of keeping the peace, or keeping others comfortable. Some stories have been asked explicitly to do so. In these stories, people had been welcomed to the table, but conditionally. Whether the condition was adapting one's authentic gender expression or just quietly stomaching painful comments couched as jokes, the welcome was partial at best. The stories shared that afternoon were a potent illustration of the ways that the vision of a welcoming Thanksgiving table falls short, not only for the indigenous people at our tables, but for so many others too. I know that it is not just those of us who are LGBTQ who have had such experiences. When we put a magnifying glass on these failures, we can see that elements of the original Thanksgiving myth trickle into contemporary expressions of the holiday too. The presumption that harmony requires that some concede or conceal parts of their wholeness, that assimilation ultimately supports unity, that politeness compels us to avoid acknowledging discord or conflict or harm beyond the table itself. That the dominant center must be preserved at all costs and thus that the burden to adapt and keep quiet falls to those at the margins. To the extent that our vision of the promise of the Thanksgiving table has its roots in a harmful myth, that covers up a violent history, then perhaps that vision too needs a deeper address. As the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray concluded in her reflection about the Thanksgiving story, we must make visible and dismantle harmful narratives beginning with how they live in ourselves if we are truly to be about the work of liberation and justice. Now, I don't think that this requires that we abandon the most inspiring and beloved parts of the holiday altogether. But we have work to do. 
to ground in the truth-telling and reparation that are required to heal the ongoing legacies of colonial violence. And that as we dismantle the destructive narrative at the heart of Thanksgiving, that we might need to intentionally look elsewhere for new narratives, for the vision of the welcome table that we long for. You might have noticed that the tables that were so artfully described in Dennis's reflection and in our reading by Joy Harjo were not Thanksgiving tables, but kitchen tables. They described tables that bear the brunt of everyday life, tables that hold paperwork and clown costumes and babies and gossip, Tables that are capable of holding death and loss and change, too. These are tables that have room for whole selves and whole lives. And as in Joy Harjo's vision, tables that have room for brokenness, too, that can be places where we put ourselves back together again. Perhaps most importantly, these kitchen tables are host to all this stuff of life, not just once or twice a year, but day in and day out. What's potentially most harmful in the Thanksgiving myth is the way that it leaves out what came before and what came after. That even if the meal had been as harmonious as the myth would have us believe, that vision is shattered anyway by the lack of regard for the Wampanoag and indigenous people across the country that immediately followed on its heels. In much the same way, true reconciliation with that painful history requires acts of remembrance, repair, and solidarity that are consistent and continuous. Coming to the table is an ongoing practice. So how will we show up tomorrow and the day after that? How will we show up for our families and our neighbors and those that we do not know at all? In this moment, when our tables are definitively changed, how will we bring into being a renovated version of the welcome table? How will we keep coming to that table such that there is room for all of all of us? So that there is room for repair and healing and atonement, for joy and sorrow, for suffering and for gratitude, for the good stuff and the hard stuff and everything in between. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.